One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I wanted to let you know about a new documentary that I'm in. It's called Hysterical, and it's all about women in comedy. It's really interesting and funny and we've got some great people in it like Fortune and Judy and Eliza all our friends so check it out it's streaming on FX and Hulu actually you can watch it on Hulu and I think it's really great an Erio's original with anti-Asian hate crimes at record numbers this season of the Margaret Cho we're examining the historical crimes that laid the groundwork for this recent onslaught of violence. I talk with Asian comedians, authors, journalists, podcasters, as well as the organizations and people working to stop Asian hate. Welcome to The Margaret Cho, Mortal Minority. Today, we're talking about the recent slew of attacks on Asian women in New York and Seattle. And our historic subject is the infamous liquor store shooting of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins by Sun Ja Du that along with the beating of Rodney King set off the LA riots. Today, my guest is the very accomplished author, R.O. Kwan. Her debut novel, The Incendiaries, was named Best Book of the Year by over 40 publications. I love the book, and I'm so excited to have her on. Thank you for being on my show. I'm such a fan of yours, and I love the book, The Incendiaries. I'm, I want to talk to you a lot about it, but how are you feeling right now? How are you doing with everything that's going on? Well, um, thank you for having me on. I, I really am such a long-time fan of yours. <laughs> um, I've loved your work so much, um, and you've been such a such a guiding light, I think, for um, for a lot of people I know, and certainly for me. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> um, and thank you for having read The Incendiaries. Um, that means a lot. So I, um, how am I feeling right now? Oh, Lord. I feel as though <laughs> that's the only way I can answer how things are going right now, just with like, oh, God. Um, I was telling a friend that I feel as though an Asian friend, an Asian woman friend, that I feel very much as though I'm in like mire. I'm in I'm in like mud, and it it it, it like almost like it's like to my waist. Mm-hmm. And some and sometimes it feels as though I can. Sometimes I can move, you know. Sometimes I can move forward, and then sometimes I, I stop being able to move. Like I'm, I'm just like in the sludge. But re, but regardless, the sludge is there, and that sludge is made up of so much 
sorrow and fear and anger and I wish I could get out of it. I think that might be the best answer to how I feel. How about you? <laughs> what a poetic, poetic words to describe such a terrible feeling, you know, because mm. I feel the same way. I feel a lot of fear and I'm looking for escape, which is why I really appreciate your book because you paint such vivid pictures of these people who are navigating through their own kind of mud and silt but it's actually quite beautiful I mean when you're like able to remove um, yourself from life like that's why I love books because they can really remove Mm. you from the world you're in and go into another world and the world that you've created is very troubled and difficult but at the same time like I'm not going to physically get hurt from it I really want to hear Phoebe play piano. <laughs> I really want to like. I'm like, hey, Jean, no, you have to play piano. Hey, Jean, no. <laughs> hey, Jean, no. When you read it, everybody needs to read the book, The Incendiaries, and they'll know. I'm also really obsessed with her. Uh, I want to see the clavicles because I don't have a clavicle bone. My, my neck just goes right into my chest. <laughs> My dad would always comment that I didn't have a clavicle. Oh, my goodness. And that you couldn't see it. And I think this was troubling to him, you know, mm. that you could never see it. I mean, he doesn't talk about it anymore, but the clavicle bone is quite a measure of beauty, I think, in my family. I've never thought about the sort of implications of a clavicle bone, but yeah, you're right. That like it, clavicle bone, like it's like a... I mean, for, I mean, it's a sign of thinness. Like it's like the first thing, right? It's a sign of thinness and. and But pride also a kind of female pride where you're straight backed Mm. and your head is up. So Mm. it's like my head was always down because I just didn't want anybody to talk to me or see me. So like with Phoebe, her head is up and she's got this very upright. I mean, it's part of being a pianist too is Mm. your body's part of the instrument your body's part of the piano so you have to have this upright posture that i've never been able to achieve it's pride Mm. yeah pianists have such um intentional posture and it's really noticeable they're either straight up or sometimes you know a pianist can get really excited or really like sort of like close to what they're playing and then they like physically bow down toward it and then they sit back up and you're right that that's very much a part of like a piano performance. Yes, if they're like really in it and they're bent down over it like Schroeder style, <laughs> there's something about like, then they're almost like making love to the keys, but then mm. they kind of remove themselves from it and sort of sit up and really play. There's a kind of separation between themselves and the instrument. So I always like, whenever I have sex with somebody in a band, I'm usually having sex with a piano player because they're turned away from me. So my goal is to make them turn around Mm. to look at me. So Mm. I always love, I like the Schroeder thing. (laughs) I love that so much. I haven't, um, for all the, you know, I worked on the incendiaries for 10 years. um, Mm. And for all that time, I never really thought about, about that piano posture and about, the significance it has I'm now just thinking a lot about that (laughs) yeah I mean it it's sort of like it takes a lot of like um it takes a lot of presence in her character in the book because Mm -hmm. I see her at 
the engagement of the piano. I see her with her engagement with Will and also with John in a similar fashion. And she sort of uses her body and her posture in each kind of interaction these different characters so it's a very I, I really love the book and I, I just wanted you to know that I, I think it's beautiful and it really helped me in this past week kind of like make sense of all of the terrible things not not make sense of it but at least pull me away to realize that there's more beauty in the world and I don't have to be in suffering and mourning about all these terrible things oh that is thank you so much for saying that Margaret that means so much to me and I'm so glad the book was um was of any help, especially during this terrible time. It's great. Thank you. And um, what I feel like, yeah, it is like almost as if the crimes against Asian Americans are escalating, even though, you know, it seemed to come to a head with the Atlanta shootings. There's even more. And um, what I wanted to open up with talking about today first was the assault on the Filipino woman, Vilma Kari, which happened in New York City. It was this crazy thing where she was just out. It's in Hell's Kitchen, walking on Wednesday. She's walking to church. I mean, she's 65. She's assaulted by a man kicking her in the chest. Did you see the video? I did, I did. I saw the video and I... um. And I, I actually, I, I think I watched it. The reason I watched it, I wish I hadn't. The reason I watched it is that that morning I had taken um, a bystander intervention training class. Oh, okay. And it was an, like an hour long class. The, per, the point of the class is to, is to try to just like be more aware of like what tools I have. If I see, if I see an injustice happening in front of me, what, what can I do? And so I think I watched the video because I was like, okay, in this situation, what could I have done? Like what would, what would have been like the first thing that I, that I could have done? And then instead I saw, um, I don't think I was quite ready for, I, I, I clicked on the video before I read about it and I wasn't ready for um, as, whew, the attack is so horrifying. And then I think the part that has really destroyed me and so many people um, is the combination of the attack with, with mm. the security guards who not only just did there, not only didn't run to help after the attacker had left, um, yeah but close the door on the woman, close their door. And just, and just that the inhumanity of that is something that I think I, I think part of it is that in that moment, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't want to conflate too much. I know of course that the, the people, the most affected by the most terribly affected are, are, are her and her family and her loved ones and her, and her friends who are, um, for whom this is of course, like it, this is their tragedy. And at the same time, I don't think I know of an, or at least with the Asian friends I've been speaking with, especially the Asian women, mm -hmm. we all saw our mothers and our grandmothers and our own selves in that moment, right? Like we all, we all saw that, that those mm -hmm. security guards were turning away from us yes. um, and shutting the door on us. And that, that is something that I think I, um, I think I will, I don't think I'm ever going to forget this video. I think I'm carrying this to my grave and I don't want to. It's so painful. He's such a large man too. He's so much larger than her, maybe three times larger than her. And just the violence and when he is attacking her, um, saying you don't belong here, it's really shocking, painful, scary 
he was apprehended later. There was a lot of photographs of the incident and the video, obviously, which went everywhere. Um, his name is Brandon Elliott. He's 38. He um, was out on parole for killing his mother. And there is something that is so painful about that, too, where there must be so much pain in him that he's got to inflict it on somebody else. But it's no excuse, of course. But it it really was all very painful. This is kind of like, it, but it's not just this incident. I mean, there's just so many. There was another one um, in New York where a woman was headed to a rally with her daughter when she was attacked. And um, this is from ABC News. A man had been arrested and charged with a hate crime after attacking an Asian-American mother attending a rally against Asian violence in New York. I mean, she's going to a rally. I, I, I don't understand. This is um, Sunday. She was with her seven-year-old daughter. She didn't want to give her name, but she says she's very shaken up. She's sprained her ankle. She has bruises and lacerations on her face. The suspect approached her, asked for her sign that she had for, that was taken to the rally. And he took it and stuffed it in a trash can, then punched her. And unlike this other incident, people came up and helped her and ran after him in the subway. Obviously, he was disturbed, a disturbed person. But this is like just another incident. And then Friday, another ABC News article, Friday in Seattle, a woman was attacked driving with her two children. They prosecuted uh, actually Christopher Hamner uh, with three counts of malicious harassment after he screamed profanities and threw things at cars in two different incidents, targeting women and children of Asian heritage. It's like, you know, yelling profanities at a woman stopped at a red light with her two children in the car, then later uh, cutting off another Asian woman driving, yelling a profanity, and the word Asian as if that's a profanity. It's just like stacking up, you know, these stacking stacking of crime upon crime it's almost like every week there's something and you know i think i think from the from the reports i I, i'm seeing reports basically every day on social media like every day another city another person or persons and what i keep thinking about is um almost all of the asian elders around whom i grew up who are predominantly korean I know that if they experienced something like this, the last thing they would want to do would be to tell their children, right. let alone report it officially. Like this is just, it feels like a cardinal rule um, for my family and so many Korean families that I know and, and a lot of Asian families um, that the elders do not worry their children right. and the children do not worry the elders. Right. And so what killing me is that not killing, I, it feels extra, um, I don't want to say that it's killing me, especially when we're talking about deaths, but what's really, really, really painful is thinking about how very many there must be of these attacks every single day in America on our elder, attacks on our elders, attacks on children. That's the other mm-hmm. one, the number of of Asian children across America who are being bullied by their classmates, being told that they, these little babies, are the ones responsible for an entire pandemic that has killed millions of people. 
And, and there, there are so many of these happening every day in America. And it's so wild. The number of white people I've heard or, uh, heard or seen say, wow, this is coming out of nowhere. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> this racism is coming out of nowhere. And it's just like, well, no, no, no Asian people think it's coming out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, we, we, we've been here. We've been here. We've seen <laughs> but, this. Hey. Yeah. You know, but I think that it's it's just gotten to the point where we can't stand it anymore. Also, the, the technology that we have where we can capture video of these events so we can show others in a way that is meaningful, I think that's part of it. But it's also escalating to a point where it's almost unimaginable. I mean, we all sort of knew this was happening anyway for other reasons. It's not just the coronavirus, of course. This stuff has been happening forever. But it's more um, pointed maybe because of the coronavirus and maybe because we're all still quarantined for the most part and sort of able to sort of be still and watch it. Mm. Yeah. And I know I know there's a few I, I've heard people say, well, you know, now that um, the previous president, I still refuse to say his name. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to refuse to say his name for the rest of my life. Um, the previous president, now that he's gone, and of course, he's caught, he is directly responsible for so much of this, for the for the rise in the attacks. Um, his, uh, the great evil of his calling the pandemic a Chinese virus, the great evil of everyone who parroted that, the great evil of everyone who supported the politicians who said this, like they are all responsible. Yeah. That said, even with, even with 45 gone, even with the previous president gone, um, no, I don't have any faith that this is just going to go away. Even if we now have a president who is saying, hey, this is bad. Right. <laughs> Do it. Who, who is saying that? Like, that's not, that's not going to fix this. Um, and there's so much more work that needs to mm-hmm. be done. And I feel so disheartened um, by how often I've heard and seen people say, oh, well, you know, this is just going to get better. And well, you know, it, it, it's it been around a long time. It's a little more visible now in this past year, but it's been around, around a long time. It's not going to go away just because we have a different president. No, and of course, what upsets me the most about him is the casual way that he would weave racism into his words to make um, it even more dangerous. The, the fact that he's flinging off anti-Asian sentiment as if it's just a casual thing that you can just say. And, you know, the irresponsibility of that, but it truly shows how damaging and damaged we are as a nation and how quickly we need to get back to some sanity. We're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about the fatal shooting that set off the L.A. riots. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. We're back. And a lot of what I've noticed in the videos and the uh, different attacks against Asians have been occurring from black people. And the Korean community in particular has had a long contentious relationship with the black community. And it may be because we just are in the same neighborhoods. I grew up in a black neighborhood. My family always had businesses in black neighborhoods. The Korean and the black community are completely enmeshed. Do you have that experience? Well, I grew up in, um, I grew up outside of LA um, in a town that was um, not only predominantly Asian, but um, like my high school was predominantly Korean. And there were so many Koreans that Korean was offered as an elective um, hmm. and non-Koreans took the class. They enrolled because they wanted to know um, what the Koreans were saying when we talk shit in hmm. Korean, like during lunch <laughs> and in the hallways as, as we did. Um, but no, um, I, I do want to say though, that I think, I think that in my experience and in my friend circles and in my um with, with the people I love and trust. Um, there is so much like allyship and, and, and togetherness with my black friends, my Latinx friends, um, my, black and my black and brown friends, period. Um, and I really do think that, and I know other people have said this, Kathy Park Hong has talked about this a lot. Um, there is a real generational difference, you know, our, those of our elders who moved to the US from other countries, there is a lot more, I think, entrenched racism and lack of understanding than there is among like, I don't know, millennials and, and people who are, who are in the next generation who, who've grown up differently. Maybe. Yeah, we need to heal the rift between the Asian community and the black community. And I think what happened is it's historic. So in the 60s, the idea of the model minority emerged during the civil rights movement from the white establishment to in effect show black people look here's a whole group of a minority who are not speaking up for themselves they are the model minority they are the model way to be a minority and it's really set off this sense of like you have to be good a good person of color as opposed to you have to be a bad person of color this kind of thing of like it's attaching a morality to our skin as if we only exist for the performative value of white society. It's an incredibly insulting mm -hmm. view, but it's almost lost in us because what white supremacy done has now removed themselves. White supremacy has left the chat. It's really like not cool. <laughs> and it's so upsetting because it's like you, you've now set people of color against each other when, when they unite, they have real power. And I think that's why at least 
at least some people maybe don't quite understand is um, every time I see an attack whew, by a person of color on an Asian person, every time I'm just like, this is still white supremacy. Mm -hmm. This is a result of white supremacy. Right. Um, every single time it's white supremacy. Um, and, and I don't think, yeah, you're right. I don't think that, I don't think that that's always clear to people and whew, white supremacy has done so much to us all, man. It's so hard because also like the conservative pundits have now tried to frame all of the anti-Asian violence as coming from the black community, from brown communities, but that's not the case. They're trying to remove themselves from guilt, absolve themselves of responsibility of all of this that they've caused. And so that's a really damaging thing. And so I wanted to go back into history and kind of look at one of the reasons why there is such a contentious relationship between um, the black and Korean community in particular. It also has a lot to do with uh, my feelings around this case, uh, the death of Latasha Harlins. I got a lot of the information from a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful documentary that's on Netflix called Love Song for Latasha. And it's just a, an amazing, amazing documentary. And it's up for an Oscar. And I feel like Love Song for Latasha is really something that everybody should see. Also, I got my information from a book called The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins, Justice, Gender, and the Origins of the LA Riots. And um, this is by the amazing UCLA historian, Brenda E. Stevenson. I also um, listened to Take Two podcast on KPCC, which was honoring 30 years since the death of Latasha Harlins on um, March 16th, 1991. So, this is like a really, it's a really, really important story. And it's one that I think people don't really talk about as much as Rodney King. People think that Rodney King was really what set off all of the LA riots, but it started with Latasha. It also continues with the erasure of Breonna Taylor in that we don't support black women's stories as much as we support black men's stories, which we should support their stories regardless of gender. And uh, Latasha Harlins had a huge impact on our society. 30 years ago, on March 16th, 1991, 15-year-old black girl Latasha Harlins from South Central walked into Empire Liquor Market in Delhi, grabbed a $1.79 bottle of orange juice and put it in her backpack. A Korean-born merchant, Soon Ja Du, accused her of stealing it. Uh, but Latasha had $2 in her hand. Do grab Latasha's sweater, and there was a, a huge altercation where there was uh, a lot of punching each other, and Latasha put the juice on the counter and walked out to leave. As she was turned to leave, Sunja Do pulled out a handgun and shot Latasha in the back of the head when she died. Police confirmed later there was no attempt at shoplifting. Um, when they came in, Sunja Du had collapsed behind the counter. She had um, a very kind of difficult relationship with her husband, Billy Du, who, when police arrived, she was collapsed behind the counter and he was slapping her. The police actually had to stop Billy from slapping her. The entire story is just so painful because Latasha 
being a child, didn't have an ID on her, the police had to go door to door in the neighborhood and try to ask people if they knew this girl. And they were showing them the photograph of Latasha's body. It actually took four days before Latasha Harlan's family could retrieve her body. Soon Jadu was arrested and taken to Civil Brand downtown, which is the women's jail. When she was there, I mean, she had a hard time. She was not fluent in English and sort of had time hard time explaining to anybody there what had happened. And of course, everybody was really angry. But it, it was all a really terrible situation. And there had already been a lot of different incidents involving Korean grocers and different black people in the community. Actually, Latasha's uncle had worked at Empire Liquors. When Billy Do told her uncle that he had to work overtime without pay, the uncle quit. Mm -hmm. So it was like this thing of, you know, you're not respecting the employees there because you're treating them like you would treat Koreans in that Korean people don't at that time have a sense of fairness in labor. If you work for a Korean, you're going to work for them for free. You're going to work for them overtime. There's a kind of hierarchy in business that disregards human rights, mm. I think, and is, is just completely unfair. But at the same time, it's a cultural difference. There were a lot of cultural things that made the relationships between Korean people and black people really hard to kind of get off the ground because Koreans are um, not really look in the eye people. We don't look people in the eye because I don't know. Are you first generation? I'm, um, I was, I moved to the States when I was three with my family from Seoul. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I'm considered like, I guess technically I'm first generation, but I'm also, I, I hear a lot of 1.5 generations since like, from my memories start basically in the U.S. Um, but yeah, I moved here when I was three. Okay. So then you, you kind of know, like there's a hierarchy. There's nine forms of honorifics. There's a lot of protocol in social interaction that has to do a lot with age, mostly with age, sometimes financial status. But in general, you don't look people in the eye. You don't insist on things. You don't um, have a friendliness about you. Friendliness is something that is really earned in a way that has something to do with being the same age as somebody, attending the same sort of school, being in the same kind of environment for a long time builds trust. I think that's part of it. Yeah, for sure. And here too, you know, again, white supremacy. Um, I was just rereading part of um, Kathy Park Hong's um, really wonderful book. But the reason Korean immigrants were going into um, predominantly Black neighborhoods and opening stores is Black people often couldn't open those stores themselves because they were redlined. At the same time, these Korean immigrants were were, were having a really hard time too, like financially, they weren't insured. And so there were these terrible conflicts Again, born out of out of the all pervasive uh, poison of white supremacy, like it was set up so that people, so that there would be antagonism. Like there, like it was set up so that there would be, so that there would be conflict. Yes, and there is a difficult environment. I mean, there's 
a bunch of things happening in the neighborhood that was making it very unsafe for anybody to live. In that direct neighborhood where Latasha lived and the Empire Liquors was, there were three active serial killers and murderers, including um, the Grim Sleeper, who was killing young black women. I mean, here there are sexual predators, rapists, murderers going unchecked. There's a lot of gang activity, which um, during the 80s and 90s, the uh, sort of very, very sort of big thing between the Crips and the Bloods, I just know of it very much in a personal way because I made a movie in South Central in 1995. And at that point, if you were going into uh, shoot the uh, scenes in a Crips neighborhood, you had to have a Crips diplomat come and they would park their car. They would park a specific Crypt leader's car right by your um, base camp so that you wouldn't have any problems there. And then if you went to a Bloods neighborhood, you would have the Bloods take you. So it was they, they were making films in the neighborhoods, but you had to have this emissary, almost as if you were going into different countries. It was really interesting. And I, I was like, that is such an amazing idea of like structure within something that seems very different, you know, very scary. And in the 90s, L.A., was so segregated. I think that some of that is kind of maybe dissolved because of millennials, people who have earnestly tried to mend all of the holes in the culture, you know, that we've had over time. But forever, you know, it was like South Central was Korean and black, Beverly Hills and the Valley was white. You know, you had the Latinos in East LA. So you had this very segregated environment that um, people were traveling between and everybody's in our car so they don't see each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is so true about LA. And that's something that's something I, um, I grew up in LA, um, or I mean, again, like outside of LA, but I mean, I love LA, but that's one thing I don't miss about LA is, is that is how much of one's life is spent in a car, man. Yeah. It's <laughs> really separate. Exactly. Like the real isolation, the daily isolation of that was something that I found really hard. Yes. The separation of people, these sort of misunderstandings can really take a long time to heal because you're just not seeing people. So uh, at the time, Mayor Tom Bradley, who is black mayor, he was very popular. He knew how incredibly diplomatic and political this moment was because he had, of course, had a lot of support from the black community, but he had also had a lot of support from the Korean community. They really ensured his success. He uh, wanted to keep the peace in the city. And this is before the LA riots. This was actually a time where they thought maybe they could stop all of the real violence happening. There was an activist named Danny Bakewell who, he was a very prominent activist. He had actually worked with the Black Panthers. He was a really big agent of change living in South Central. And he um, was putting together the Brotherhood Crusade, which was a protest organization. They were going around to um, different places and having boycotts of different Korean markets. The Empire Market, he set up a boycott outside and they were trying to engage with Korean merchants to give them a, a kind of a code of conduct. Look, we're going to be treated with respect. You're going to make businesses in our communities. You're going to hire people from our communities. You're going to treat us with respect because we spend money 
in these stores. And I think that that was really important. I think that this was a fair thing to do. There was a lot to be amended. And I admire that outreach and that outlook. Even if like you're different from somebody, if you're making money in that community, you need to make an effort to really invest your heart in that community. And I, I mean, I think that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very difficult thing, though. The, the entire thing just caused much more misunderstanding. There was mm-hmm. another shooting where another black man was murdered in a store by a Korean store owner in the name of self-defense. At this particular location, the incident was not videotaped as it had been in the surveillance camera with uh, Latasha's murder by Soon Jadu. And so nobody could say it was sort of a he said, she said, not she said. It was he said he was protecting his wife from this black man who was arguing. And so he ended up shooting this man, which to me, the introduction of guns, that's where the major problem is. I mean, the, the fact that they felt that they needed to arm themselves, which I don't know. I don't like guns. I'm not a proponent of guns. I feel like they're too easy to get. The gun that Sunja Du had when the um, police ballistics went over the gun, they saw that the trigger was much easier to shoot, that, that it was somehow faulty so that any pressure on the trigger would cause it to go off. And for her, somebody who is not experienced with guns, who is in a a real sort of panic, you know, I I still cannot imagine, you know, she was 51 years old, so I'm 52. I couldn't imagine, no matter what's going on, pulling a gun on a child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that's like, you know, people can talk about the uncomfortable nature of what was going on. But the situation really speaks for itself is Sunja Du murdered a child mm-hmm. and shot her in the back of the head. You know, no mm-hmm. matter how much love I have for the Korean community, this is something that I, I find so egregiously terrible. I mean, it's, it's just, I almost have no words to describe the suffering that I feel at this action. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The videos um, played multiple times over news channels. There's uh, a lot of different uh, songs around it. Tupac actually, Tupac Shakur um, has a number of uh, tracks where he name checks Latasha and, and what happened. Um, Ice Cube releases a song called Black Korea where he mentions the incident. There is a beautiful poem by Sapphire, which is called Strange juice which is a a sort of take on strange fruit which describes the incident and to me the art around it really lends particular poignancy to the incident yet i i don't know how much we've learned in trying to protect black women especially in light of brianna taylor it's a different situation but also her erasure from history is something we have to actively combat. Sunja Du went to trial. She was defended by a very famed black lawyer named Charles Lloyd, who uh, was very much, um, it was a contentious thing in the community that he was 
representing a Korean store owner who had murdered a black child. Yet, you know, he took on the case and eventually Sun Jaju was not charged with murder. Well, well, she was charged with involuntary manslaughter, which um, has a maximum sentence of 16 years in prison, but she didn't uh, have to go to prison at all. She didn't uh, do any time. She was um, given probation for five years and charged $500 to um, pay for the funeral. The funeral cost $7,000. So $500 isn't even the price of flowers. I don't know what $500 calls for. I don't know what that means, but it is nothing compared to the life of a child. I think that this really enraged the community. Um, this verdict came down just a few weeks after, you know, in, 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 in this sort of like thing of like people really understanding that there was going to be a problem. This was in November. And so the trial for the officers accused of beating Rodney King, who were guilty of beating Rodney King and who <laughs> were acquitted, happened yep. in April in the spring. So it was almost as if you're piling on injustice after injustice and the lingering anger around Natasha Harlins. It was setting the table for this terrible event, which is the L.A. riots. Were you born before the riots? So you would have been, how old are you? I, I was born. I was born. Um, and my father worked in L.A. And so I was old enough to be aware of the L.A. riots, but I was still young enough that I didn't understand what was going on and why people were upset. So like that's so I was like, I, I, I knew it was happening, but I didn't. But it's only afterward that I read a lot about it and learned a lot about it. Yeah, and you know we're we're talking right now, and it's it's Friday of um it's it's April second um, and you know like right now the Derek Chauvin trial is is going on, and that and that's and that's it's just it's 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 <laughs> like the, it's every it's every day like every day there's there's we live in such a cruel country yeah. we live in the richest country in the history of the world we have more than enough money for everyone to be housed and fed and to be able to take care of everyone's sort of basic needs. And instead we live with vast income inequality. Racism is at the start of this country, um, is at the start of this country as the United States. And I think it's just, I don't know. I don't know that that's helpful even to say, to just talk about how cruel this country is, but over and over again, I think I'm bewildered by the cruelty of this country and by how much our wealth outpaces this country's compassion. Yes. It's so true. Also, the wealthy seem to just get wealthier. And there's such a gap between, you know, the way that people make money and the way that people are prosperous and the way that people are not. And it just continues to cause pain. I feel like we have the tools now to heal it. But when I watched the trial of Derek Chauvin, I, I'm so incredibly worried. I really feel like he's got to go to prison. He's got to change the way that we look at police brutality as being completely unnecessary, completely brutal, completely violent, and completely out of control. And we've got to figure out a way to stop this happening again. I mean, it is 30 years almost to the day of the acquittal of the men who viciously beat Rodney King. And yet, 
we're going through the same thing. And it, it's, it's just, to me, this nightmare that keeps happening over and over again. And hopefully this time we will see some justice. Um, Sunja Du never actually saw any real justice. She's actually living still here in Los Angeles somewhere. I don't know if she's really changed her name or anything. She sort of disappeared into the Korean community at large. Actually, at some point, somebody had put out flyers in 2013 uh, around another Korean-owned liquor store saying that the owner was Sun Jadu's sister. But it, it was not, in fact, true. Still, it inflamed a lot of people and made a lot of people incredibly angry. Last year, a park in South Central was named after Latasha Harlins as a way to memorialize her. I wish that we could have seen her grow up. She could have been um, Stacey Abrams. She could have been somebody that would really change things. But I think that even with the tragedy that happened, she did change things. She made us remember, and she made us remember and really try to treasure young life and treasure young hopes. And hopefully incidents like this won't have to happen. I feel like in a lot of ways the Korean and black communities have come together. But when I see these isolated different incidents by black people against Asian people, it opens up these wounds again. I feel like the only way to heal them is to talk about it and not to be afraid to. And I want there to be healing in our community because we're people of color. We are all oppressed and we need to bring white supremacy back and put that on trial. Yeah, and again, you know, I want to, on the one hand, so many friends and I have been really, really let down by the size and breadth of white silences um, about anti-Asian racism. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, my friends and I, pretty much every Asian person I've been talking to, our, our siblings of color have not failed us. Our siblings of color are showing up. Our siblings of color know what we're going through. And I feel as though that that does give me some hope, just seeing that, mm -hmm. let me put it this way, I don't, I don't have friends as far as I know. And if, and, if, and, if, and if they were these friends, I think they would no longer be qualified to be my friends, really. I don't have friends who don't believe extremely strongly that as people of color, um, as BIPOC people, that we need to stand together. And yes, that the real problem is, and I'm not the first person to say this by any means, but um, when every time there's there's a hate-based atrocity or when there's, when there's a surge of one variety of racism or another, whether it's anti-Black, anti-Latinx, um, anti-Native, anti anti-Middle Eastern, like anti-Asian, anti-all of us, there's always one group that's sort of like the originator, right? Like there's only, there's, there's only like one group that gets pointed to as being the real problem. Mm -hmm. And that problem is what is, is and, that, and that group is white people. And so as much as yes, like I, I believe in and support and, and believe very much in fighting for people of color, working together and supporting one another. I also want to say like, white people need to fix themselves. Like that's, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's like, <laughs> that's, yeah. they're the ones who really need to fix themselves. We're going to do it. I have faith. I have faith in the world and I have faith in all of us and we're going to come together. We're going to be okay. Man, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, we will. 
We will. Where can people find you on the internets? Where do what are you? Uh, what are you known? What are your handles? On Twitter, um, I'm at I'm at R O Kwan. I'm K W O N. And on Instagram, I'm on the same with a dot in between. So it's R O dot Kwan. K as in kindergarten. W O N as in never. Um, K again, I'm going to say, because I'm so exhausted by all the times I will say that that way, like K is in kindergarten, K is in kindergarten. And then over and over <laughs> people write it down as Q-U-A-N. Like they were like literally <laughs> unable to hear. <laughs> They're unable to hear me. Like it's like, and, and the, the other thing is um, my, the, the name under which I write, like the name under which I'm known, I guess, um, where where I am known is is Ro, but my first name um, is Reese, and the number of times people mishear that as Grace. So my name is so often oh. <laughs> because Grace is a pretty common Asian name, and Reese is not. Yeah, totally. And so yeah. people write it write my name down as Grace Kwan with a Q, even after I spell out the whole thing. It's so wild. <laughs> I'm so exhausted by that. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we got to share this. Very difficult subject, but you made it a really, really a great talk. So thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me, Margaret. Today we are highlighting the GoFundMe for Vilma Kari, which was started by her daughter, Liz. We will link to it in our show notes. Thank you for supporting, and thank you for listening to The Margaret Show, Mortal Minority. If you want to support the work we're doing, you can rate and review this podcast and tell your friends. If you want to support our show, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcast, and spread the word. Reach out to me on Twitter with your thoughts, at Margaret Cho, or at Instagram, at Margaret underscore Cho. The Margaret Cho is produced by the Erios Network. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 